Revelation 14, starting in verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, uh, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we uh, believe that uh, there are no words anywhere in the world like the words given to us in the Holy Scriptures. The revelation of our God and Creator and Judge. And Lord, we believe that the words found in the Scriptures are essential knowledge for us as as human beings, as those who bear your image in the world. And uh, so we thank you that your word speaks to us honestly and with hope and with um, direction and, uh, and clarity. And so we pray for your clarity by your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, that you would guide us into truth and into hope that's in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've been uh, studying through Revelation uh, together as a church, one of the main theses uh, that we've had has been that Revelation was written to Christians preparing for martyrdom uh, during the great persecution of the years from 64 to 70 AD in the first generation of, of Christians. And even though these words that we're reading in Revelation were written to a specific people in a specific historical context, they still apply to us, just as all of God's word still applies to us. That's true of Revelation as well. And that's true about our topic Today, and our topic is our eternal destinies. What happens to us after death? And you can see that the topic of eternity is present in this passage, both there in verse 6, where it says in verse 6, I saw another angel flying overhead with an eternal gospel. See the, the focus on eternity there. And then again in verse 11, where it says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. 
So the topic of eternity is, is present here in this passage. And our eternal destiny is without doubt one of the most fundamental questions that we must come to terms with in our lives. All of us must come to terms with what happens to us after we die. And so today, I want to just have as clear a statement as possible about it for all of us. Essential knowledge. And so I'd like to make three simple observations from this passage, and this is what they are. That first, our eternal destiny turns on believing the gospel. Second, our eternal destiny includes the possibility of hell. And that third, our eternal destiny is blessing to those who are in Christ. So three fundamental truths that our eternal destiny uh, turns on the believing the gospel, it includes the possibility of hell, and is blessing to those who are in Christ. And my hope is that each of us would give our most careful attention to this topic this morning. So three points on our eternal destiny. First is this, that our eternal destiny turns on believing the gospel. So uh, our eternal destiny uh, turns on believing the gospel. Now this passage that I just read uh, is structured around the announcement of three angels that are flying kind of in midair in the vision of Revelation. And you see what it it says about the first angel in verse 6 there, and it says, then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. And so Revelation calls the gospel an eternal gospel, which means that the gospel is a message about eternity. And uh, the Bible is clear that according to God, the most important thing about you and the most important thing about me, it's, it's not your race. It's not your gender. It's not your talents or your education or your wealth or your good looks, or your athleticism, or your intelligence, or your charm, or your background. These are all the things that we kind of evaluate one another on and judge and value people on. None of those uh, things are what's most important to you, uh, about you to God. The Bible says in God's eyes, the deepest question about who you really are is how have you responded to the gospel? That one question is the very thing on everything, is the thing that everything hangs on. If you accept the gospel, God will accept you. And if you reject the gospel, God will reject you. And if that is the case, that our eternal destiny turns on believing or not believing uh, the gospel, that raises two questions for us that I want to answer. Okay, so first is, well, what is the gospel? If everything hangs on the gospel, what is the gospel? Uh, and, you know, if I asked you that, if you're a Christian, what is the gospel? How would you answer that? And uh, I think most people would say, well, the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and then he was raised on the third day, and if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. And I think that's, pretty, that's a pretty good answer. My favorite, you know, summary of what the gospel is is the Apostles' Creed. We say that every Sunday here at church. And the Apostles' Creed says, you know, we believe in God, who is the creator of everything, who sent his son Jesus, who was, you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into the grave. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So that's a summary of all the things that God has done in Jesus. That's what we say is the gospel every week. And then actually the Apostles' Creed goes on to talk about the grace 
that we receive when we believe in Jesus. We say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. You know that when you believe in Jesus, you're filled with God's life. And I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. I believe that I'm a part of God's family when I believe in the gospel. That's part of the grace. I believe in the forgiveness of my sins, that all my sins have been taken away because of the blood of Jesus. And I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And so the gospel is what God has done in Jesus and the grace that has been given to us through him. The gospel is what God has done for us through Jesus and the grace that has been given to us through him. And the most important question about you is, will you receive what God has done for you? Will your heart be open and humble and soft enough to receive it? That's the most important question about being human. And, uh, and you might say, well, okay, that's well and good. But is that the gospel that actually we find in Revelation chapter 14, this passage that we've been studying? Is that the gospel that this angel preached? Well, you look at the message of the angel in verse 7. It says, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Now, at one point, that's kind of like the Apostles' Creed because the Apostles' Creed says that God created everything and this says God created everything and we should worship him. But you might say, you know, the angel's gospel doesn't mention anything about Jesus dying on the cross or being raised from the dead. So how is this the gospel? Well, I think the, the clue is in that little phrase, the hour of his judgment has come. Now, most of us, when we hear about the hour of his judgment has come, we think that's talking about the end of history, the final day of judgment. But it's helpful to remember that Revelation was written by the Apostle John. And the Apostle John also wrote a gospel that tells about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And, if, uh, and in John, uh, the gospel of John, Jesus often talks about his hour. You know, he says to his mother at the wedding of Canaan, my hour has not yet come. And then later in the gospel of John, uh, right before Jesus dies on the cross, this is what he says in John chapter 12. Jesus says, for this purpose, I have come to this hour. There's the hour. And then he goes on and he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When I, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show uh, by what kind of death. He was going to die. So when the angel comes proclaiming this gospel of the hour of judgment has come, the hour of judgment is all the events surrounding Jesus' death on the cross. The judgment of God fell on him in our place, and God raised him from the dead. And so in the person of Jesus, God is dividing the world into those who are willing to receive his love and those who are hardened against it. It's Jesus who divides the world. And so this question, will we receive the love of God, is the thing that determines our eternal destiny. Okay, but that leads to a second question, is then, well, who is the gospel for? That's what the gospel is, what God's done in Jesus and the grace that we receive in him. But second, who is the gospel for? And I want to point out two answers to that, that question. The first is that the gospel is for all people. The gospel is for all people. And you notice again in verse 6 how it says, Then I saw another angel flying overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. 
This says the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ is not culturally situated. It is for people from every ethnic background. And that's really a unique part of quality of, of the gospel, that it's been able to adapt to all different kinds of ethnic groups and cultural backgrounds. And actually, if you look at the history of where has the gospel really had its center of mass, where the most people are really believing the gospel, the center of mass of the gospel has really changed throughout history. You know, in the, in the early church, it was, uh, it was in uh, Western Asia, and then uh, in the time of the church fathers, Many Christians in North Africa, you know, St. Augustine was, uh, was African. And then later the gospel uh, in the medieval period had moved into Western Europe. And the, you know, all the bishops went and started monasteries in, in the, among the barbarians in Western Europe. And then in the modern era, it was really in the U.K. And then in the United States was kind of the center of mass. And then now today, it's like, you know, Africa is 60% Christian. China is over 10% Christian. I don't know how many. There's a lot of Christians in China. South America, there's been a huge movement of the Spirit in the last century in South America. And so if anyone thinks that, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion, I mean, that is totally absurd. The vast majority of Christians in the world are non-white people living in the majority world. And so uh, this makes sense. If the gospel is the thing that determines the eternal destiny of all human beings, it should be able to adapt to every ethnicity. And remarkably, it has been able to do that. Because the creator is the God of all people. That makes sense. So who's the gospel for? Well, first it's for all people. But second, we see that the gospel is for those who repent and believe. The gospel is for those who repent and believe. And you see in verse 7 it says, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. And I think to repent of our sins, to know our sins are an offense to God, that's fearing God. And to believe means to give him glory, to give him thanks for all that he's done and to receive what God has done in Christ. And so the way to receive eternal life of the gospel is to repent of our sinful life. There has to be a sense where we repudiate the sinful things that are in us. And we just say, I don't want that in my life anymore. That has to be a part of it. And then also uh, is to receive the grace that Jesus offers us. And many people complain about this, that, you know, it's just, well, you repent and you believe. And you say, so someone could be wicked their whole life. And they're selfish. And then on their deathbed, they believe, and they're just forgiven, and they get to be with the Lord forever. And I would say, if you're a true believer in Christ, you would always say, if that's true repentance, absolutely that's true. Because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when you became a Christian. We never deserved heaven. A true believer knows I didn't deserve to go to heaven, and God has welcomed me. And I look at Jesus in the Gospels, and he's welcoming the prostitutes and the sinners and the, you know, the people that have sinned against God, and he opens his kingdom to them. And if he opened the kingdom to me, then praise God if even in the last minute, what a miracle, that God has rescued someone. And if the requirement for eternal life is not repentance and faith in Jesus, then what is the standard that God has? Because God can't just leave us all the same when we go into heaven. Or what's, heaven's just going to be like this place. And we're all going to be sinning and hurting one another. And it's going to be just as bad. So he has to demand some kind of change from us. And what are we going to say? That good people go to heaven? Who are the good people? 
Is that people who are like charming and well-liked and they get along with people well? They're the people that get to go to heaven. Maybe they were raised that way. And so because they were raised a certain way, they get to go to heaven. Is it people who are educated, who are generous, the wealthy, the poor? Who is it? God has leveled the playing field and required something that is not limited by people's background. It is simply to repent and believe. It's the same for everyone. And so the first point is this, that our eternal destiny turns on believing the gospel. And what is the gospel? It's the message of what Jesus has done for us and the grace that is offered to us through him. And who's it for? It's for people from every ethnic background, but particularly those who are willing to repudiate their own sins and to receive the grace of Jesus. But what happens if we refuse to receive what Jesus has done for us? Well, that's our second point, is that our eternal destiny includes the possibility of hell. Our eternal destiny includes the possibility of hell. Now, this passage is one of the key passages both in Revelation and the whole Bible for developing the the doctrine of eternal punishment. And you notice uh, the announcement from the third angel in this passage, verse 9. This is what it says. And another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, I don't think that this passage uh, necessarily, you know, alone establishes the doctrine of hell. One of the things that we mentioned at the beginning is the Revelation's written to a specific people. And because the uh, the people being judged in this passage are people who are worshiping the beast. And we've talked about how uh, the beast is, is likely the Roman Empire. And, you know, it talks about the image of the beast as well. You know, the Roman Empire had all kinds of images sprinkled throughout the empire that required uh, a worshiping of the emperor. And so, you know, in the Roman Empire, it's a very tolerant place. They say, you can worship whatever gods you want as long as you include the emperor in your worship. And so, uh, um, but there are many parallels to what's happening in this passage here to what happens later in Revelation in the final judgment. So, for example, verse 10 in this passage mentions being tormented with fire and sulfur. And in the final judgment of Revelation 21, that fire and sulfur is mentioned again. This is what it says, Revelation 21.8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, some people hear a passage like that and think you're just trying to use scare tactics to get people to believe in the Bible, and that's manipulative to try to scare people to just kind of believe in your religion. And I don't really know what to say to that. I, it's not a tactic. Do I think you should fear this happening to you? Absolutely. You should take it very seriously if this is what God has said. My job is just to plainly and clearly say what, God's, what God has revealed to us, what God has told us. 
And if you're a person who thinks, oh, I don't believe all that stuff in the Bible about final judgment, I just want to tell you that that's not logical. You might wish that there's not final judgment and say, I just would prefer that there wasn't a final judgment that I had to deal with. Okay, you might wish that. But if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that we all know that there is a moral law that we all live under. I mean, even little children, before they've been taught anything, are just like, that's not fair. You stole that from me. You lied to me. They innately know there is a moral law that we are all responsible to, that it, it puts demands on all of us. And those little children are evoking this universal law of fairness and honesty. And if there is such a law that exists, it makes absolute sense that there would come a time where there would be an accounting. You and I will one day give an account for everything that we have done in this life. And, uh, and Jesus put it this way, every idle word that men speak, they will give account for on the day of judgment. It's an incredible statement. Every idle word, everything, that shameful thing or that cutting word that you, we've said to people close to us where we have hurt them, it is all remembered and it will be accounted for. And the reason for this is because your life is important to God. You might think, oh, I'm just this one person out of the billions of people and what does God think about little old me? He thinks you're important. You have been made after his image. You have dignity, and what you do and what you think matters deeply to him. And it is vital information for you that you will either pass that test and enter into eternal life with Christ or face an eternity in hell. Our eternal destiny includes the possibility of hell. Now, I want to answer a couple questions that you might have about hell. Okay, First one is this. Is hell eternal conscious torment. And this verse is one of the clearest statements that seems to say that the answer is yes, right? Verse 11 says, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So clearly this punishment is eternal, it's conscious, and it's incessant. And some of you will read that and think, I just can't imagine this. People suffering day and night just on and on in just misery, just going on for an endless amount of time. And I'll tell you, one of the things that makes this seem possible to me is that we already see it in this life. We all know people that stubbornly will spend not just days, not just weeks, not just months, not just years, decades wrapped up in bitterness and their hearts are angry at everyone. They're critical of everyone. They would never admit that they did anything wrong their whole life. And uh, they're bitter and they're miserable. And there's something that they savor about the misery. And they just want to be turned in on themselves. And they're totally selfish uh, to, them, to themselves. And we see that it goes on forever and ever. And we say, you're so miserable. And you, why don't you turn from that? And they don't want to. In their pride, they stubborn, stubbornly stay in that misery. And um, I think that this passage is saying that that condition, that hardening, it is possible for that to become permanent. You are permanently that way. Now, there's been debate historically of whether the, the fire of hell is literal fire, and I don't want to actually dive into that debate right now. There's people say on, on both sides, but we can just all agree that whatever it is, it's terrible. 
And, uh, but that's still a question because some of you will say, you know, I have neighbors and friends who are not Christians, and I just really like them. They, they love me. They're good friends. And, and so, you know, the thought of them suffering forever, and, you know, I just picture my poor neighbor is on fire and screaming forever and ever, and you have this image in your mind, and you say, how could that be? Like, I just, it's, I can't imagine that that's what's going to happen in the future. Well, I think one thing to think about is that all the things that are good about the, the people that we love, whether they're Christians or not Christians, is always God's grace in their life. You know, Psalm 16 says, apart from you, I have no good. And so even for our non-Christian friends, they, you know, they have a great marriage and they're, they're generous or they do their work well and they're a good boss and things like that. That is God's common grace just poured out on them. And so... Uh, it, um, if someone at their core, though, hates God and really deep down says, my life is mine, God is not going to tell me what to do. I'm not going to give him honor. I'm not going to give him thanks for my creation, and I want to own my own life. That is a certain core. And when all the grace that's covering them this whole life is taken away, there is going to be a very different kind of person that is left. And what's left is only kind of a wraith or a shadow of the friend that we love. And so the picture in our mind, if it's just our friend who's covered in God's grace, is not really the picture of what's going to be in eternity. So first, is hell eternal conscious torment? This passage says, yes, this very sobering reality. Okay, but the other question that you might have is, is hell eternal separation from God? is hell eternal separation from God. And I think the Bible says yes and no. So there are passages that suggest that hell is separation from God. You know, Jesus has parables where he talks about a, a person being judged and cast out into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing and teeth. And it, that seems to be that you're being separated from God. You know, you're going to be alone. You're going to be isolated. That no unclean thing can come into God's presence. Uh, but the other reality is that since everything in existence is held together by Christ, that's true about hell. If hell exists, then it's held together by God. He makes it exist. Then you can never have complete separation from God. And this is one of the verses that puts the emphasis on that side, that hell comes from the presence of God's judgment. You see in verse 10 where it says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Jesus' presence is joy to those who love him, and it is torture to those who hate him. And again, we already see this in, in our life. I mean, we all know people that if you just mention the name of Jesus, they go ballistic. They just are like, I don't want to hear anything about the Bible, I don't want to hear anything about God. It just stirs something inside of them. And you're like, that's some of the experience that's being described here. So hell is separation from God's loving embrace, but not separation from his judgment. So our eternal destiny turns on whether we believe the gospel and hell is real. And why is hell being talked about right here in Revelation chapter 14? Well, you can see the answer is in verse 12, that this is being written for Christians. Verse 12 says, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. 
those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And, you know, that might be the case for a lot of us. We're going to go through hard times as Christians, and we're going to say, you know, I feel like my life would be a lot easier if I wasn't a Christian. You know, I, could, I wouldn't have to obey God in these ways that are, that are hard and they're suffering, and it'd just be a lot easier if I wasn't a Christian. There may be some of us that there's going to be times where we say, you know what, I didn't give up on Christianity because I didn't want to go to hell. And I think that's what this passage is saying. And that's okay. Now, hopefully you don't stay there. Hopefully you come to say, well, I want to stay a Christian because I know God loves me and I enjoy his love. But this is true. It is both our love of God and fear of him that should keep us from not abandoning the Lord. And so that leads to our final point, which I, I wish I had more time for. But this last point is going to get its own sermon later in Revelation. So we're just going to touch on it here is that our eternal destiny is blessing to those in Christ. Okay, so our eternal destiny turns on believing the gospel. Our eternal destiny includes the possibility of hell. And third, our eternal destiny is blessing to those who are in Christ. How do we view death and eternity as Christians? Well, I don't think you could say it better than this. Verse verse 13 says... And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Revelation was written to people who are going to be martyred. And this verse is saying it's a blessing to die. I think many Christians feel that way. You know, I feel that. I can't wait to be free from my sin and just I really am going to love God and love people the way that I really was made to do it. And I look forward to that day when I'm set free from it. So it's a blessing. And so just to be clear about what the Christian hope is, what Christians say that if you are in Christ, what happens to you when you die is there, death is a violence to the human person. Your soul and your body are, are ripped apart. But your soul goes to heaven to be with God, and your body goes in the ground. And, uh, and your soul goes in heaven. Heaven is, is a city. God's presence is there. There are innumerable angels there. And uh, there's the spirits of those who've gone before us that have been perfected. And in heaven, you are waiting for the last day when Christ comes again And just as Jesus' body was raised from the dead into like an indestructible life, our bodies will be raised from the dead as well. And heaven and earth will become one place. Jesus will bring heaven to earth. And our humanity will be healed. That's why our bodies have to be raised, because a human is a soul-body union. And so there's a full healing of the human person that will happen. And we will be in the presence of God in a renewed creation, free from sin and death. It's an absolutely remarkable promise and hope. And, you know, I was talking to someone recently who who had asked the question, well, what if I don't look forward to heaven and eternity with God? You know, I love my life here, and I don't want to leave this life. I like what's happening here. Well, I was reading a, a theology book recently that pointed out that in the Bible, earth is always patterned after heaven. That means that everything that we love here is just a copy of the truer and more beautiful world in heaven. So whenever we have a great meal or we go on a beautiful hike or we connect deeply with a new friend, these are only the copies. These are only the shadows. The reality is heaven. 
And we think that this world, you know, we often think that this world is so firm and it's physical, and then we think of heaven as like there's spirits or ghosts and they're bouncing around on clouds and there's no like real substance there. It's just the opposite. The Bible says this is the place that's vaporous, that's fading, that's disappearing. This is the flimsy place. Heaven is the real, concrete, immovable place. And I will tell you my experience. The more people I know that die, the more true that becomes. The more people that we watch die, we realize this world is fading. Everything that we hope in is fading. It's just a mist that you can't even grab onto. But that world is firm and real. Friends, your eternal destiny is one of the most important matters of your whole existence. And it turns on whether you will turn from your sin and receive the grace that is offered to you in Jesus. It's a free gift. It's forgiveness. There's no sins that his blood can't cover. He can cover all those sins. But hell is real for those who have hardened themselves against that grace. But even more real is the promise of heaven. And may you and I be able to face death with the confidence of this passage. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, these are great and sobering truths that you put before us as your people. And I pray for every soul present in this room that hears these words about our eternal destiny, and I pray that you would lead each soul to the grace of Jesus Christ, who welcomes sinners into his kingdom, whose blood is sufficient to cover all of our sins. And Lord, may we just have the humility, the faith to receive what you give to us. And Lord, we love you. We pray that you would give us endurance, that uh, we would... Uh, in, until that day that we are with you forever. And that is our great hope. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.